Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, <clears throat> went through a uh, little bit of a phase just a while ago when I was in the throes of moving and I needed to have something to read so I ended up buying a shitload of Superman trade paperbacks. One of which is, the title is Superman daily planet and the basic idea behind it is that it's a reprint of a bunch of uh, superman comics where the daily planet staff or for that matter the daily planet as a location play a central role in uh, the story here so and as you can probably have guessed the pre-crisis era figures into this pretty heavily and so i've been reading through this and i got to be honest a lot of these stories well, some of them are taken from Superman and action comics, which as far as the Silver Age is concerned, that really is a good part of... Uh, that. That is mostly what my knowledge of Superman and the Silver Age is, you know, consists of, right? Superman and action comics. Never really went too far outside of that. But a lot of these reprints are Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen and Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. Which, by implication, I think you can say that you could fairly say that I never really paid a whole lot of attention to. So, anyhow, what I'm saying here is that this trade paperback called Superman Daily Planet is, believe it or not, this is my first time reading a lot of Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane and Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. And I guess I always sort of assumed that this stuff is kind of silly and trite. You know, even by Silver Age standards, this stuff is pretty fucking unreadable. But I gotta tell you, man, at least the... At least the reprints that are included here, these are just sort of fun stories set in the, you know, the Silver Age era of, of Superman. But some of these are actually really interesting. They... Well, I guess you could say they rhyme in the George Lucas sense of the word. And I guess a good example of that is on page 27. This is uh, a story called Perry White, Cub Reporter. Originally presented in Superman's Pal, Jimmy Olsen, number 42, in January of 1960. Writer is Robert Bernstein, penciler is Kurt Swan, inker is John Forte. And the basic pitch of the story is that Jimmy Olsen becomes editor-in-chief of the Daily Planet for a day while Perry White takes a, takes on the job as cub reporter. And there's, you know, all kinds of wacky hijinks ensue, and it's just, it, it's a fun little story. And honestly, that was about as much as I thought about it until I got to page 76 in this trade, wherein I came across a story entitled Lois Lane, Daily Planet Editor. Originally presented in Superman's Girlfriend number Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane number 54 in January of 1965. Writer is Leo Dorfman, penciler is Kurt Swan, inker is George Klein. So different writers, but the same basic idea here. Lois Lane is now the editor of the Daily Planet <clears throat> for a day. And all kinds of wacky hijinks ensue. And I guess it's kind of interesting because the Silver Age isn't really gonna, going to be remembered for, I don't know, depth, uh, depth of characterization, right? Generally, a lot of Silver Age stories, they are very plot-driven. And so, what you know, one natural consequence of that is that characterization sometimes takes a backseat to exciting shit happening on the page. And certainly these stories are no exception, but whenever you put them kind of side by side with one another, the way that Jimmy Olsen handles being editor-in-chief of the Daily Planet for a day versus the way that Lois Lane handles being editor-in-chief of the Daily Planet for a day, it's just kind of interesting, that's all. I mean, they, they make fundamentally different decisions and there are different outcomes. I mean, in both cases, Perry White gets kind of butt-fucked, but otherwise, you know, it's just kind of fun, you know, these are just fun little stories, and 
honestly, stories like these are everything that make the Silver Age cool to me, you know? The the fact that, you know, it was a time when not only could Superman support two titles of his own, which is to say Action Comics and Superman, but his supporting cast could have stories uh, uh, have stories and titles of their own, you know? Jimmy Olsen had his own book, Lois Lane had her own book, and they tended to, for at least judging by these reprints, they those stories tended to play Superman more as a supporting character than the lead character of, of the story, and I don't know. I mean, it kind of makes me want to read more Jimmy Olsen now. It makes me want to read more Lois Lane, because... I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not saying that every single story, you know, every single issue, you know, of those series is gold the way that these stories are, but there's got to be a lot of redeeming value to them. I mean, because they lasted for so many years or decades, and it's, I don't know, it's just, to me, this is what makes the pre-crisis Superman, and specifically the Silver and Bronze Age Superman just cool so anyway there's really no deeper meaning to any of this stuff i just i just thought it was really interesting and i wanted to talk about it for a little while and now i have so there you go now enjoy the rest of the episode Biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Doctor Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I've been talking a hell of a lot about Superman lately. But Superman's not all I ever talk about. Not even close. It's just that Superman's all I've been talking about lately. And there's definitely a reason for all the Superman talk lately, but I'll get into that more later on. Usually, though, I talk most of the time about comics, movies, and TV shows. It's only lately that it's been all Superman all the time. You see, I'm finishing phase one of a mega-series all about Superman. The five episodes prior to this one were all about Superman, and the next six-episode cycle that I go through is going to be all about Superman 2. Which is to say, Superman also as opposed to Superman 2. The movie, Superman 2. Big difference there. But anyway. As I've done this show, I've gone through several six-episode miniseries dedicated to a single topic or theme or idea. And all of them are awesome, by the way, because Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is the best geek podcast anywhere on the internet. But anyway, yeah. So... When I look back at all the stuff that's come before, I have to admit that this Superman mega-series I'm doing right now is probably the biggest, most ambitious thing I've ever attempted in the entire history of this show. But Superman's worth all this trouble, you know know what I mean? Anyway, like I said, been spending tons of time recently talking about all sorts of Superman comics. But it hasn't been only all about comics, not one bit. As a matter of fact, I talked about a hardcover just a few weeks ago, some digital comics not long after that, and, well, for this time, it's going to be another hardcover collection. Now, you might be wondering why Superman is such a big deal for me right now. Well, 
should be obvious. 2014 is unprecedented in terms of importance to Superman's history because this year is Superman's 76th anniversary. So my attitude about it was there's no better way to spend 2014 than discussing Superman. I mean, 76 years, you know? I mean, this is important. It's historic. And it just it made a lot of sense to me to spend at least part of 2014 celebrating Superman's 76th anniversary. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? Just to make sure that nobody misses the point, allow me to repeat myself. There's no better way to spend this year, 2014, and there's no better character, understand? There's no better character to spend time focusing on than Superman in 2014. And pretty much just waxing fanboy over the fact that this year is Superman's 76th anniversary. Anyway, that's enough of that stuff. Now, if you know me at all, you probably know how ignorant I am of Superman in the Golden Age. And don't get me wrong. I have a big affection for the Earth 2 Superman from much later in DC's publishing history. But it'd be a mistake to say that I know a whole lot about the Golden Age Superman. Now, I love the hell out of the Fleischer Superman cartoons, just like anybody else. And I also went on and on at length about how much I love the Superman War of the Worlds Elseworlds story back in episode 22 of Trinus Magnus Punch's Reality. So, I guess the point here is I can appreciate Superman stories set in that period. I just don't have very much familiarity with stories that were published during that period. So, to me, this just seemed like a good chance to start changing that, you know? So yeah, here we go. Today I'm talking about Superman number one. And I mean the real Superman number one. No new 52 bullshit going on here. This is a real deal. Cover date is 1939. On sale date is May 18th, 1939. Cover price is 10 cents. Writer is Jerry Siegel. Artist is Joe Schuster. Editor is Vincent A. Sullivan. The first story that we come to is titled Superman, Champion of the Oppressed. Superman, a man from a dying planet where civilization was far more advanced, came to Earth as a baby. A kind farm couple find the boy and raise him as their son, Clark Kent. The boy develops incredible powers as he matures. Following the death of his foster parents, Clark begins using these amazing powers to benefit mankind as Superman, champion of the oppressed. All of this is merely an introduction for the next story, which is entitled, War in San Monte. Clark tries to gain employment at the Daily Star, but the editor does not wish to hire him. Kent, as Superman, learns of a gathering lynch mob. He investigates and saves the life of Sims, a prisoner who reveals that he's not the murderer. B. Carroll is. Clark phones in the story and is hired. Superman then visits B. Carroll, confronting her with the murder of Jack Kennedy. No relation. B. pulls a gun on Superman, but he stops her and forces a confession from her. Publicly revealing himself for the first time, Superman brings confessed murderess B. Carroll to the governor's mansion in time to prevent the scheduled execution of Evelyn Curry, the woman accused of the crime. When he changes into his disguise of Clark Kent, he reports to his newly acquired job as a reporter at the Daily Star. In the newsroom, Clark receives a tip concerning a wife beating. Arriving as Superman, he gives the man a taste of his own medicine before turning him over to the police. Later, Clark asks pretty reporter Lois Lane for a date. Lois reluctantly goes out with Clark, but is disgusted when he won't stand up to some hoodlums who harass Lois. Lois leaves the club, but is but she's kidnapped by Butch Mason, one of her assailants. Clark dons his costume and overtakes Bush's car. He, reaches, he rescues Lois and leaves Butch behind for the police. Clark's later assigned to cover a war in the small South American country of San Monte. Before he makes the trip, Clark travels to Washington, D.C. and sees Senator Barrow speaking to lobbyist Alex Greer concerning a Senate bill. Leaping around the city with Greer tucked under his arm, Superman tries to force Greer to tell him who's 
who's behind the corrupting of Senator Barrows? Eventually, Greer, scared shitless by Superman's display of power, confesses that the man behind everything is Emile Norvell. Meanwhile, war's brewing in San Monte, and Emile Norvell, a wealthy munitions manufacturer, is profiting from selling arms to both sides of the conflict. While traveling to San Monte with Lois Lane, Superman battles Norvell's thugs. Once in San Monte, he forces Norvell to join the army and demonstrates to him firsthand the horrors of war. Meanwhile, Lois has been arrested as a spy, and Superman must save her from a firing squad. Ultimately convinced that war must be averted, Norvell returns to the United States vowing, the most dangerous thing I'll manufacture is a firecracker. Then the Man of Steel brings the commanders of the warring armies face to face, where they discover they've been manipulated and have no real quarrel with each other, and thus, war is averted. The end. The next story is, Superman battles death underground. The story opens as Superman saves a group of miners from a collapsed mine. Sensing a greater problem, he investigates charges of unsafe conditions as Clark Kent. Mine owner Thornton Blakely insists that the workers cause the problems and his mines are safe. During the night, dressed as a miner, Superman steals into a party Blakely is throwing. As a lark, Blakely decides to move the party into the mine where Superman surreptitiously causes a cave-in. When Blakely tries to use the safety devices installed for such occurrences, he discovers that they don't work. After the trapped party-goers all collapse, Superman clears the way to safety. Now convinced, Blakely declares that his mine will be the safest in the country and his workers the best treated. The End The next story is entitled, Superman, Gridiron Hero. Overhearing the crooked college football coach of Dale University plotting to stalk his team with thugs to defeat Dale's major rival, Cordell University, Superman decides to take action. He imprisons and then takes the place of a member of Cordell's team whom he closely resembles, Tommy Burke, the team's so-called champion benchwarmer. With his powers, Superman quickly impresses Cordell's coach and is put out on the roster for the championship game against Dale. Prior to taking the field, Superman, as Burke, confronts Dale's coach and threatens to expose the coach's scheme. The coach instructs his hired thugs to take down Burke, which is Superman in disguise, but Superman proves to be more than a match for Dale's ringers. Shamed, Dale's coach resigns his position, and Burke resumes his identity to enjoy his newfound fame and an early retirement from football. The end. So, what did I think? Honestly, I'm pretty impressed. All of these are, especially the first one, which is to say, Warren San Monte, but all of these are fairly high-concept stories, considering that we're talking about the Golden Age. Now, a lot of us in general, and me in particular, we, ten we tend to associate fairly simple black-and-white conflicts with this time in comics, but the stories here in Superman number one are more complicated than that. Especially for Warren San Monte, there are layers of motivation. Different characters have different agendas. And the conflicts aren't necessarily completely black and white. Also, there are some twists and turns in the story. Stories. Not huge ones, but, but they're there. War isn't happening between the two nations because one of them is good and the other one's bad. Instead, it's happening because a munitions tycoon is coercing both sides into conflict so that he can profit from their weapons purchases. Another interesting thing is Lois is portrayed from the get-go as a headstrong, brave career woman, while B. Carroll and Lola Cortez are positioned as very clever and very dangerous enemies. And keep in mind, guys, Superman debuted in a time when women were usually thought of as being significantly less than men, less intelligent, less responsible, and other things. But Lois Lane, B. Carroll, and Lola Cortez suggest that Jerry Siegel had relatively progressive views of women considering the time in which he lived. I mean, women could be successful and career-driven, or they could be deadly adversaries, or any number of other things. So, 
I guess what I'm saying here is that these aren't exactly simple morality tales by any stretch of the imagination. <clears throat> a lot of conventional wisdom of the late 1930s is called into question as you make your way through Superman number one. Especially in Warren Sanmonte, nothing is what it seems in these stories. Now, as, I guess as far as women are concerned, I'm not saying that Jerry Siegel had a had a completely modern understanding of women, and I'm not criticizing him for that either, but there is the, you know, and I guess, you know, maybe something that just kind of, the exception that maybe proves the rule is the example of Tommy Burke having problems with his girlfriend Mary because he's not cutting it as a football player, and so because of that, she dumps him for a more successful athlete. But in general, what you need to acknowledge is that the conflict in that story, Superman and the gridiron thing, the conflict in that story has to come from somewhere, and Mary's ultimatum is as good a place as any. Still, that gridiron hero story, it, it's kind of weird, and then it starts off with a sort of hit and run that ultimately means absolutely nothing. It was pretty much just a contrivance for Superman to get into the story about the football game between Cornell and Yale. Uh, oops, I mean Cordell University and Dale University. Now, I realize that this was the golden age and, you know, stories weren't told the same way back then that they are now, especially in comics, but honestly, I, this really is beyond the beyond. Um, the first couple of pages in, the, uh, in this story are pretty much con total contrivances to get Superman involved. That's it. Now, I'm not going to go too hard on it because of that, but it still needs to be pointed out, you know? Another interesting thing is that most of the crucial elements of the Superman mythos, such as his origins from Krypton and being raised by the Kents, hiding his powers from the world until adulthood, whereupon he becomes Superman, going to work for a great metropolitan newspaper, all that shit. It was all there right from the start. Now, yeah, his origin story has been expanded upon in a big bad way over the years. Krypton is a very well-developed uh, culture these days. Jonathan and Martha Kent have been explored heavily as characters on uh, too many occasions to even hope to list here. It was later settled upon in, in continuity that Clark works at the Daily Planet for Perry White and with Lois Lane and, and Jimmy Olsen, as opposed to the Daily Star. But all of that stuff pretty much works as an expansion on concepts that were introduced literally from the get-go. These further developments, they clarify on what was already there from the very beginning. But... Not much of Superman has been invented out of whole cloth separate from his very first appearance. That's what I'm saying. It's, most of these things have just been slowly and subtly built upon and expanded over time. The fundamental skeleton of the Superman mythos is present from day one and going forward. Now, we should probably get into the art here. Honestly, I'm not a big fan of Joe Schuster's art. Never have been, never will be. Now, I really dig most of the artists he eventually hired to work out of his studio, by which I mean artists like Leo Nowak and John Sakella and, and Fred Ray and all the rest. But Schuster himself has a pretty rough, scratchy style that just, it turns me off. Now, I can appreciate that he probably had heavy deadlines. I can also acknowledge that he may have had only limited access to formal training as an artist, but all the same, his art lacks detail. It's got a lot of unnecessary hatching going on to it. Perspective is sometimes goofed up. A lot of panels just look awkward and clumsy, and there's, there's other shit too. So, on the one hand, I can definitely give Joe Schuster a lot of credit for defining Superman's visual language, the costume, the Clark Kent disguise, the original design of Lois Lane, and all that other stuff. But at the same time, it kind of needs to be said that a lot of his work 
just isn't attractive to me at all. So, okay then. So, I think that pretty much says it all for Superman number one. Be right back after these messages. cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a 10-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Every legend has a beginning. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it .com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no .com. Forget that. <laughs> So from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytube.com. Okay, I'm back now, and I'm continuing my foray into Superman's Golden Age adventures. In this segment, I'm going to talk about Superman number two. Cover date is fall, uh, fall 1939. The sale date, approximately, is August the 22nd, 1939. Cover price is 10 cents. Writer is Jerry Siegel. Artist is Joe Schuster. Editor is Vincent A. Sullivan. The first story is entitled The Comeback of Larry Trent. Superman saves the life of a boxer who's trying to commit suicide. The boxer is Larry Trent, ex-heavyweight champion. Larry explains how he was set up to lose and is now pretty much down and out. Superman vows to replace Larry and help him regain his title. Disguised as Trent, Superman wins several amateur bouts which earn him an appointment with crooked fight promoter Jock Kane. Kane sets up a bout between Trent and Slugger Barnes. Superman makes Barnes look bad and begins his road to the title. 
Along the way, Superman spars with a real Trent in order to get him back into shape. Trent's old manager, Tom Croy, tries to set Trent up again by drugging him during a title bout. The real Trent is ready to fight, so Superman lets him fight the bout while he handles Croy and some racketeers. Trent wins back his title and his confidence. The end. The next storyline is entitled Superman, Champions Universal Peace. Clark Kent reports on a new gas invented by Professor Runyon, which is deadly and no gas mask can protect you from. Three racketeers led by, Bar ba led by Bartow burst in and demand that the professor turn over his formula. Later, Professor Runyon is found murdered and the formula stolen. Superman follows the three crooks to the warring country of Boravia. In Boravia, Superman's captured briefly after being knocked unconscious by a bomb. Bartow orders a firing squad to be use, used on him, but Superman shrugs off the bullets. After destroying numerous weapons, Superman finds that Bartow has delivered the formula to munitions manufacturer Lubain. Lubain uses the formula to make a sample of the gas which he tries to use against Superman. The gas doesn't affect Superman, but it does kill Lubain. Superman then forces the nation's leaders to make peace before traveling home to ensure Bartow is arrested for killing Runyon. The End The next story is entitled Superman and the Skyscrapers. Superman keeps a lookout for sabotage of a building which is under construction. Five deaths have occurred due to accidents near the building. The Man of Steel spots a night watchman sabotaging a girder. He stops the man and forces him to give up, give up the name of his employer, Butch Grogan. The man then dies of a heart attack. Superman confronts Grogan, who was hired by a rival construction company, Acme, to slow progress on the building and ruin the reputation of Bruce Constructions. Grogan is shot fleeing from police, but not before warning Nat Grayson, president of Acme, about Superman. Locked in a metal room, Grayson hides from Superman and uses explosives against him. Superman survives and rips through the steel barricade. He forces Grayson to confess, which earns him a date with the electric chair. The end. So, what did I think? Well, what's interesting is that these stories are all reprints of the Superman newspaper strip. That sets the second issue of Superman apart from the first issue, which mostly reprinted the first two issues of Action Comics. I mean, yeah, 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 they did a little bit of expansion on it, but basically... Superman number one reprints action comics. Superman number two also has, and I guess because of the fact that it's, it, it was originally sourced from newspaper strips, that has some impact on the quality of the art, especially the comeback of Larry Trent, which just has a very newspapery type of feel to the art. The stories themselves are pretty much on par with Superman number one. But at the same time, there's some interesting character development going on here. For one thing, the comeback of Larry Trent shows Superman impersonating Larry Trent as a boxer to get him back in the business. As with Superman Gridiron Hero from the first issue, this all raises the point that Superman could have been a massively successful and very wealthy professional athlete if he'd wanted to. But instead... He uses his power to help others. It's not about greed or an ego trip or anything else. He wants to help people who can't help themselves. And the reason they can't help themselves is usually because they've been screwed over by the system in some way or another. There's also the issue of Superman's powers being much less potent in these early adventures as compared to what we know today. For example, in Superman number one, it's shown that he can only leap an eighth of a mile. And while Superman's definitely uh, bulletproof, he says that a speeding train would kill him in the first issue of Superman. In Superman Champions World Peace, again from the second issue, he's knocked out by a bomb. So I guess my point here in all of this is that it kind of says a little something something about how much Superman's powers have evolved over the years. In fact, you know what, now that I think about it, you, you could kind of compare this to uh, Superman's limitations here. I mean, you, you know, you could kind of compare Superman's limitations in these two issues with 
the range of powers most Marvel characters tend to have. You see, DC characters tend to be absurdly powerful, while Marvel characters tend to have either one massive superpower, or else they have a variety of fairly low-level powers. Make of that whatever you want. You can also compare Superman's limitations in these, you know, early on in the, uh, in the Golden Age to Smallville, the TV show, where teenage Clark in the first season isn't exactly invulnerable so much as he's really, really tough. And obviously there's the fact that he can't fly, and he's got tremendous superhuman strength, but he only has X-ray vision as far as vision powers are concerned. Now, that's more than tough enough, but it's, it's basically, it's not as powerful as Superman is usually understood to be. So, except for the X-ray vision, it sounds, Clark's powers in the first season of, of uh, Smallville sound pretty similar to what the Golden Age Superman's power levels are like. So, I guess those of you who don't like Clark's range of powers as they're shown in Smallville can all read these issues and kiss my ass. Oh yeah, uh, one other thing. I said that I was going to be covering a hardcover this week, but I didn't actually explain what exactly this hardcover was. Basically, this is Superman Archives Volume 1, which basically this was uh, reprinted in, I want to say it's like 1990? 1989? 19, uh, yeah, actually now that I think about it, yeah, it's uh, 1989. And Basically, it, it used a pretty innovative method of reprinting these stories because I guess DC didn't have access to original negatives. And so, basically what they did was they devised a method of, I guess, bleaching original copies of these comics. Now, it is kind of horrifying to think that, you know, four issues of Superman, that is to say, Superman number one, two, three, and four pretty much had to be sacrificed in order to make these archives, these archive reprints, or at least the first, the first edition of it. But that's just how things had to be. And basically what... The method of it goes basically a little something, something like this. I'm not sure what exactly this guy's job at DC was, but a DC employee named Greg Theakston developed a process whereby you could bleach comic book paper, newsprint in a way that removes the coloring. Everything except basically the black uh, line, right? You could remove all of that stuff, all of the coloring, and then scan that into a computer and then use that as your negative to, to facilitate reprints. This process was called Theakstonization, named after the creator of it, Greg Theakston. Now, I know that... <coughs> Or at least I think that the archive editions are still being printed now. I don't know if they necessarily need to use, you know, weird means like this in order to uh, reprint the stories. Uh, and for that matter, you know, considering that we live in the age of Photoshop, I don't know that the theakstonization process is even necessary anymore. But nevertheless, that's that's basically what we have. So. Uh, it just seems weird. I, I have to mention all of this because it just seems weird to say that I'm covering a hardcover, but then not exactly explain what that hardcover is. And so, anyway, hopefully that all makes sense. And uh, so, yeah, this was uh, Superman number one and two. I read these reprints out of Superman Archives, Volume 1. And like I said, that was, reprint, or the, that was released in October of uh, 1989. So that's where all of this stuff come, uh, came from. So hopefully that all makes sense. So yeah, I think that's about it for this week. So come back next week when Superman's 76th anniversary is very briefly put on hold so that Chris Honeywell and I can resume our big book report. Bye everybody.
Hello and thank you for calling the Tales of the Justice Society of America 24-hour live human being customer service hotline. Hello, I... Unfortunately, all uh. of our representatives are sleeping. Or busy. Uh, busy. All of our representatives are busy right now. But if you stay on the line, your call will be answered in reverse Hungarian alphabetical order, starting with the letter... D. Okay. Your call is very important to us. Please stay on the line. Alright. We are experiencing longer than usual wait times. Your call will be answered in... 94. Minutes. Please continue to hold. Your call is extremely important to us. Please stay uh... on the line. Check us out on the web at www.2truefreaks.com. Your call is ridiculously important to us. Yeah, Please if my call's so important, then why don't you answer it? What the f*** is taking so long? You may be asking yourself, what the f*** is taking so long? Um, be sure we'll be with you shortly. Please continue to hold. Answer. Answer the goddamn... <laughs> Let me check, is he still there? Ah! Guys, he's still holding! Oh, Jesus. We're sorry for your wait. Please continue to hold. God damn it! Tales of the Justice Society of America is back with all new episodes. Only at twotruefreaks.com. If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something. You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am. Or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. Okay, I'm back now, and I've got a little bit of feedback to sort through here. First up, I received an email dated April the 1st. This comes from my loyal subject, Socrates Alvarez III. Email is entitled, Dave is Awesome. Let me just put the email on pause here and say that what I think he's referring to is my Shoot the Shit episode with 
J. David Weeder, the, the host of Dave's Daredevil podcast and co-host of the Starman Observatory. And basically it was on that day that I released a Shoot the Shit episode with Dave, and so I think that's what he's referring to. Anyway, Socrates writes, Great Trentus. Awesome show. Dave does a great job on his Daredevil podcast. Yes, he does. It was pretty cool to hear both of you chat about Daredevil. DD has grown to become my favorite Marvel hero. Bendis is mostly meh, but his DD run was fantastic. I don't have Miller's complete run, but I agree with your opinion that Bendis's run on DD should be placed higher than Miller's. I also like DD as leader of the hand, but a change like that would undoubtedly sour the majority of DD faithful. And let me just put your uh, email here on pause and say, you know, I thought I would catch a lot more flack for placing the Bendis run higher than I do the Miller run on Daredevil, but so far it really has not happened. So far, honestly, a lot of people seem to agree with that, and that actually kind of makes me glad because I got to say, and I honestly don't remember everything that I said about Daredevil in this episode, forgive me, so if I repeat myself, well, you'll know why, but... My view of it is that Miller's run, as much as that reinvigorated the character and as many new ideas as he brought to the table, and honestly, as much as he, in some sense, kind of reinvented what is possible to do with comics with his Daredevil run, I always kind of felt like as good as all that stuff was, it... Ultimately, the, the long-term uh, effects of that basically came to be that Daredevil couldn't be anything other than basically sort of warmed over Frank Miller. And I'm, I'm not completely exempting Brian Michael Bendis from that, but what I will say is that he definitely took the character in new directions, and I think this was the first real break from the Miller Daredevil that we'd gotten probably since Miller first came along. And so to me, the darkness of, uh, of the Bendis run, which I realize you didn't mention, but nevertheless, I'm bringing it up because I know somebody, somebody out there listening is probably thinking about it. No, if anything, Bendis probably made the book even darker than it had been up to that point. But he broke away so much from what Miller did while at the same time still not completely fucking disowning Frank Miller, that I honestly feel like that means that we get to put Bendis higher up the scale than Miller if we so choose. And honestly, that's just kind of the way that I feel about it. Now, some of you listening probably read the Bendis run as it was coming out, and so you maybe have a different perspective on it than I do. And if that's how you feel about it, dude, God bless, all right? Because I honestly cannot really argue against that. I read a whole lot of this, not in trade, but I, it was single issues, but I sort of binge read. So I want to say there's probably over the course of something like three or four months, I got, I pretty much knocked out the entire Brian Michael Bendis run on Daredevil. And so I'm coming at this from a very different point of view than I think a lot of you probably are. So if... You read that stuff as it came out and it sort of rolled off you. Well, number one, honestly, I'm not picking on you. But number two, you know what? This may be something that you want to go back and reread, you know? Maybe there's something there that you sort of overlooked at the time because you're sort of lost. And I guess the I, maybe the best way to put it is the kind of month-to-month -month, uh, minutia of it, you know? So... So, I don't know. Anyway, it's just something to think about. That's all I'm saying. So, just think about it. Just reread it. Getting back to the Socrates email, though. Socrates writes, On another note, I like your coverage of Red Sun. I think the ending of Superman Red Sun explained perfectly how Superman, being an alien, quote-unquote, or sorry, being a being from an alien, quote-unquote, planet, looked completely normal. I've heard it mentioned that Krypton had gravity, or rather higher gravity, and a dying red sun. Both would produce vastly different physical changes between the way humans and Kryptonians appear, how their limbs move, etc. 
I also like that Superman was a direct descendant of Luther, almost creating a crazy-ass Oedipus-like story. I'm going to put your email back on pause here and say, you know what? That is actually one of the things that really worked for me when I first read Red Sun. If somebody had spoiled that for me going into it, I truly believe that that would have ruined the story for me. And that twist coming as it does sort of at the very last minute, it just it just works for me. But you also get that sort of interim where between the death of Lex Luthor and then, I guess, the death of Earth in, in the very distant future, Earth, you have all of these descendants of Lex Luthor doing these crazy, crazy, just amazing scientific advancements, you know? And honestly, I don't remember every single thing. The, the thing that really stands out in my mind is whichever Luther descendant it was that was the Necronaut and was the first man to set foot in the afterlife. That was one thing that just, it just seemed like such an inc insane, crazy, just cool Silver Age idea. Just imagination overdrive that stuff like that ultimately is what helped sell it for me. So honestly, all of this is a really long way of saying that I really do agree with that. And like you say, it actually does kind of go a long way towards explaining how it is that humans and Kryptonians look so similar to each other when the conditions under which both of them thrive would ultimately, like you say, it would result in them looking very different from one another. So, like you say, that that works for me. So, all around, I just, I really dig Red Sun. I think a lot of Elseworlds stories, especially Superman Elseworlds stories, are kind of meh. But that one really does work for me. So, anyway, so... Getting back to the, the uh, Socrates email, he writes, These are the things that bounce in my head while driving or reading comics. Thanks for the inspiration. Best regards, Socrates S. Alvarez III. So thank you, Socrates, for your inspiration because, honestly, it's feedback that I think ultimately keeps any podcast going. And to me, that's ultimately what really counts. And so thank you. I do appreciate you taking the time to write in. And for those of you, those of you listening who'd like to write in, you can do so by emailing me at trenusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. Trenusmagnus at gmail.com. That's where you can reach me. Next, I've also got uh, an iTunes review to uh, sift through here. Uh, basically, um, this is, I think, my very first three-star iTunes review that I've ever received. I'm certainly at a loss to think of any other ones that I that I've uh, ever gotten. And so, anyway, to kind of get into it, uh, this is actually sort of a sort of a long one. The review is entitled "Good but Tedious at Times," and it's written by Newton North, dated April the twelfth, twenty fourteen. Newton North writes, "Let me start off by saying that this podcast is fairly enjoyable, and I definitely recommend it." The host clearly has a passion for what he's discussing, which always makes fun podcasts to or sorry, makes podcasts fun to listen to. My only real complaint about this podcast is the fact that the host's personality, quote unquote, can sometimes be tedious. And I put personality in quotes because it feels like he's trying too hard to play a character, which in this case is a quote, I'm outrageous and you never know what I'll say next, unquote kind of character. It feels like he's really working too hard to shock and shake up the listener with his can you believe I said that kind of rhetoric. It feels rehearsed and phony, not to mention totally, totally unnecessary. This host commits the cardinal sin of podcasters, assuming he's as interesting, or more interesting, as the subject matter he's covering. I'm not suggesting this guy's life is boring, I don't even know him, but I am saying that hearing someone rant about how they don't care what you think isn't terribly funny or interesting. What is interesting is hearing a host's opinion on why they feel the way they feel or sharing personal memories about what they're discussing or anything that, that uh, they can add that's un uh, uniquely them. This is what makes the best podcast stand out. They're not people trying to emulate actual radio shows. They're just regular people sharing their own unique viewpoints on topics they and you are passionate about. In the case of this particular host, I wish he'd just stick to discussing what he loves and why he loves it, rather than wasting time trying to cultivate a character that's unnecessary and often tedious. Note to podcasters, the real you is far more interesting than the, f than the fake you could ever be. 
Also, I gotta say, the tremendous amount of swearing is fairly obnoxious after a while. I have nothing against swearing, but man, does it feel forced on this podcast. This host seems to cram swear words into every sentence, possibly because he associates swearing with being edgy, which it really isn't. With swearing, a little goes a long way. I wish you'd cut back on it because it pulls you right out of the moment. I'll wrap up by saying I know it sounds like I've been extremely negative in this review, but as I said at the start, this is a good podcast and I do recommend it. It's interesting and often fun, and the host clearly loves the subject matter, which, for my money, usually makes for a great podcast. I just wish the host would focus more on his passion and less on his personality. You don't need to be edgy or cool to be a podcaster. You just have to be yourself. And again, that was entitled Good But Tedious at Times by Newton North, dated April the 12th, 2014. I guess my response to that is, eat me. By any chance, did that sound rehearsed? So, I think that's pretty much it for this time out. So, once again, you can reach me at trennismagnus at gmail.com if you want to send me an email, or... You can seek me out on iTunes by searching for Two True Freaks Presents Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. And, of course, all of your iTunes reviews are going to be read on the mic. So, anyway, so that's it for me this week. Next week, I'm going to... I honestly can't remember if I've mentioned it yet or not, but next week is going to be another episode of the Big Book Report. And so I think that's pretty much it. So, bye, everybody. See you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus punches reality there you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when i put them up you can friend me on facebook by searching for trentus magnus which is spelled t-r-e-n-t-u-s-s m-a-g-n-u-s-s you can email me and my parole officer at trentus magnus at gmail.com which is spelled T-R. E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, Please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>